They are children and they are beloved. They are loved. Well, maybe it's better to say their identity is in the father's relationship with them. They're children of the father. They are objects of his love. What an incredible thing to be able to answer the question, who are you, with, I am a child of God. I am one who is loved by him. It may not be the best way to introduce yourselves at a party. Maybe give it a go, see what kind of reaction you get. But nevertheless, that is the reality for anyone who knows him. I am a loved child of the Father. I suspect that half or more of our worries and anxieties and insecurities would vanish if we just live day to day in that reality. Whenever someone or some system in the world tries to squeeze us into the mould of their expectations or their obligations, we just remind ourselves our identity is in the Father. And all that he expects of us is to trust his son and to love one another in the power of his spirit. This is the essential starting point for anyone who wants to love. Experience and human history confirms to us that a person who has been deprived of love will struggle to love themselves. And will often be doing all they can to try and secure love for themselves because they, they feel that emptiness and so they, they want to be loved and so they sometimes uh, in harmful ways are trying to secure uh, love for themselves. But the freedom of knowing we are loved by God means we're free to no longer try and get love for ourselves because we know it, we have it. And so we're free then to look out, to look at others uh, and to love them freely. This is the security that we see in Jesus himself. Completely secure in the Father's love, he was then free to love us to the uttermost. Even the point of hanging on the cross knowing that he could call a legion of angels to rescue him, his security wasn't in that, his security was in the Father. And it meant that he was able even to endure the Father turning his face away from him and entering the darkest place of abandonment in this ultimate act of love for us. Even at that time... He knew the Father's love for him. What we're called to see in this passage is that we may also know that same security, the same freedom to love. Now verse 7, at a glance, I thought I had it there but I haven't. Verse 7, at a glance, might appear quite universalistic, uh, meaning that it applies to all people and to anyone regardless of whether they're Christian or not. Verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Someone might want to make the case that Christians don't have a monopoly on true love and they might point to this verse, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Well, they might say, well, my grandmother loves me, my friend loves his girlfriend, I love my footy team and if none of these people are Christians, well, they still love, don't they? So, does that mean that they must be born of God and know God because they love? But just as with those three examples, we actually see three kinds of love, don't we? We see a maternal love of a grandmother for their grandchild. We see a romantic love between a man and a woman. We see a obsessive love for a football team. There are different categories, there are different kinds of love. And John here is speaking of another category of love, one which the Bible claims is the highest order of love, a love of which all those other loves are just a subset or a reflection. And this is the kind of love that he goes on to define. So firstly we see in verse 8, at the end, God is love. This is saying much more than God loves or God is loving. God gives us something. Love is not just something that God does. It's at the heart of his character. It's at the very nature, the core of who he is. Such that if we say, who or what is God, we can answer with the one word, answer, God is love. Christians are the only people in the world who can legitimately say our God is love. Why? Well, it's because our God is triune. Three persons eternally united in the bond of love as one God. See, love must always have an object. In order to love, there must be someone outside of myself who is the object of my love. And so for eternity, Father, Son and Spirit have been giving of themselves to one another in this uh, selfless love. So it's not just something God does, it's something that God is So true love is defined by God, defined by God alone. And so to know true love, it's not just that we know love that God has given us. To know true love, we must know God. We must know him personally because he is love. Secondly, we see in verse 9, there we are, where we may find this love. And it's in the person of Jesus Christ. This is so important for us to know. If you're wanting to post a letter, and I said to you, in order to post a letter, you need a stamp. I used this illustration with uni students um, earlier this year, and some of them looked to me like, post a letter, what's that? You know, the bit of paper that you put in a letterbox. Some of them have never actually done that before. 
but you need a stamp in order to post a letter. If you want to be a person who knows love, who loves, you need to know the love of God. But it would be even more helpful if I said to you then, if you want to know where to find a stamp, there's a post office up the road in the shopping centre. That's where stamps are located. That's where stamps are manifested. Jesus is the location of God's love. If we want to know how God defines love, how God expresses his love, then we need to look at Jesus who embodies it. If we want to know the love of God firsthand, we need to come to Jesus who gives it. And thirdly, in verse 10, we see what kind of love it is that we see in Jesus. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is a love that doesn't originate in ourselves. It's something that we are unable to muster up. We are unable to have the ability to do. Love cannot start with me. It's not that I have loved God, rather that God has loved me. Love originates with him. And it's him expressing this love that makes it the highest order of love. He sent his son as the propitiation for our sins. He has given not just everything for us, he has given himself in love. This word translated propitiation is a really important word. And it means literally that Jesus came under the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. The right and just punishment was turned aside from us and placed on him instead. While our sins deserve death and hell, God himself in the person of Jesus the Son has taken it upon himself. This is what makes the love of God so much greater, so far beyond, infinitely beyond anything that we as humans could ever conceive of or uh, muster up within ourselves. He laid down his life for us, not because we deserve it, but because we don't deserve it. Now this doesn't render all other forms or expressions of love null and void. It simply makes them pale in comparison. It doesn't mean that a person who doesn't know this God, who is love, is totally incapable of expressing love in some form. While God has handed us over to the sinful outworking of our hearts, He hasn't allowed the human race to sink to such a low level that we become just animals and are unable to express something of the image of God that's in us. His common grace means that most people can still see and recognise love as the highest ideal. Most people know that 
they need to be one who is loved. And most people will say, yes, and I, I want to be a person who truly loves. But what the Gospel does is it humbles us to see that all these human expressions of love, no matter how great, no matter how beautiful, they're only supposed to be a reflection of this love of God in Jesus Christ. And when we just take them on our own, on their own, as we so often do, they'll fall short. In fact, they'll become idolatrous. See, what we've done as human beings is we've taken that phrase, God is love, and we've turned it around. And we say, love is God. We try to find in these human expressions of love the things that only God himself can give us. And so love actually has become the idol, the God of this age, is love. We see the slogan, love is love. If that's the totality of life, then it's actually an idolatrous kind of love. Verses 11 and 12 tell us that this is the standard of love, the love that he has shown, the love that he is That's the standard of love that he calls us to as his people, to love one another with this kind of love. So most people are capable of various forms of love, but John is claiming here that only someone who knows God through Jesus Christ will be enabled to love with the same kind of love that he loves us. Now I hope that all this talk of love is sounding very familiar to you. I hope you feel like you've been hearing this week in, week out over the last month or so. And I've mentioned how John's way of reasoning is not a straight line, it's like a circular pathway where he keeps um, visiting the same themes. But maybe a, a better way to look at it is that reading 1 John is a bit like climbing a stairwell And at each landing in the stairwell, there's a window. And so as you go up a flight of stairs, you arrive at the landing, you look out the window and you see the view. Then you're taken up the next flight of stairs, you get to the landing, look out the window, and it's the same view, but you're higher up. And so the view is wider and bigger and greater and more spectacular. This is what John is doing for us. He's taking us up into the dizzying heights of God himself and he's giving us a view of everything that God wants us to know. Verses 13 to 15, again, as we've been seeing, another one of these views from the landing, is that the link, there is an unbreakable link between the historical events of Jesus and this knowledge of God's love. In verse 13 we're told again like we were last week that God has given us of his Holy Spirit. And we saw last week that this is a reference to the day of Pentecost and onwards when the Holy Spirit came to ordinary people like you and I, not just to prophets, priests and kings. 
And verses 14 and 15 refer us to the, the primary work of the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. In verse 14 we see that he reveals to us who Jesus is. Read it. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. The Spirit shows us what he has done to save us as the outworking of the Father's plan. This is the Spirit empowered proclamation of the Gospel. See how it's not just the sharing of thoughts or ideas but it is an eyewitness account. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son. For John, it was literally true. He had seen Jesus with his own eyes. He had touched him with his own hands. He'd spent three years as a a disciple. He'd witnessed his death and resurrection. He had heard from Jesus' lips the commission to go out and make disciples of all nations. So in one sense he's just saying here, I'm just doing what Jesus told me to do. I've seen him and now I am telling you what he has done. But it's in John's Gospel that we see Jesus' words to Thomas, doubting Thomas. When Thomas saw him with his own eyes and fell down and said, My Lord and my God, Jesus said, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, we can go, like John did, we can go and proclaim this gospel with the same confidence and power that John knew. Because the Spirit has brought the truth of it to our hearts. We are just as much eyewitnesses of Jesus and his resurrection as John was. Secondly, we see in the next verse that the Spirit enables us to put our faith in him. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Not only does the Spirit enable and empower gospel proclamation, but he also enables and empowers gospel confession. Apart from the Spirit's work, None of us would have believed in Jesus. None of us would have been able to confess Jesus as the Son of God. We could have heard the message again and again and again, but unless the Spirit does his work in our hearts, we cannot cry out, Jesus is Lord. Now, I learnt a new word while I was preparing this sermon, and my guess is it may be a word that none of you have heard before. Uh, the word is hendiatus. Anyone heard of it? I'm not trying to sound clever here because, well, I'm not because I only heard of it the other day when I read it. Hendiatus means a single idea expressed by two words joined with the word and. An example is this morning I got up bright and early, which means I got up early but the manner in which I got up was bright. That's not actually true. Um, I got up this morning, but I don't think I was that bright. I might say I feel nice and warm, which means I'm nicely warm. 
And there's a Henditis in verse 16. It says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And in the original Greek it's we know and believe or know and trust. Or in other words, we knowingly trust. Our trust in him is based on knowledge. We know the love of God because the God who is love has come to us and abides in us and us in him. It's not a blind faith. It's a faith that has seen Jesus and his love for us. This knowing faith works its way out in our lives in a number of ways, as we see in the following verses. In verse 17 we see that love is perfected or completed in us. What it means to say love is completed in us is not that we have perfected the art of loving, that we love completely or perfectly, but it means that we have received the fullness of God's love in its entirety. There is no more love that God can give us because he's given us everything in himself. And see why it is God's love, this completeness of God's love, that gives us confidence for the day of judgment. We're told that as he is, so also are we in this world. What I think he's referring to here is the reality that Jesus, who took on our flesh and bone, still remains in our flesh and bone. Uh, Someone once said, there is glorified dust on the throne of heaven. The Son of God became like us so that we might become like him. And he now sits at the right hand of the Father, within the Father's embrace, continuing to participate in all that the Father's doing. He's sure of the Father's love and acceptance of him. Well, that is our position in him. We have been raised up and seated with him at the right hand of the Father. Just as he is in the Father's embrace, so too we are embraced by him. Just as he is sure of the Father's love and acceptance, so too we have that certainty. Secondly, in verse 18, because we have this knowing faith, we see that fear is abolished. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Because we no longer face the prospect of judgement for our sin, we no longer need to fear death when it comes. And we no longer need to fear whatever life may throw at us. When things go wrong in our lives, We no longer need to ask, is God punishing me? Is this because of something wrong I did in my past? No, we can be sure there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Father's perfect, complete, full love drives out fear. Fear is on the run 
because the love of the Father is stronger than any fear. And thirdly, in verse 19, we see that we may now love because he first loved us. You cannot be a recipient of true love without then also becoming a person who loves. This is a statement of cause and effect. Most certainly we know the command to love. We've been hearing the command to love and we have a duty to love as we saw in verse 21. But what this verse is saying is that love produces love. As the Father's love is complete in us, we will find ourselves, in ourselves, an irrepressible urge to love. As a church, we may, be, we may desire to be a people who love, who are welcoming, who are embracing of all who come. But this can only happen if we know for sure that we are a people who are loved. We love because he first loved us. Love not with our own strength or capacity, but the love of the Father that is so full and complete that it just overflows out of us. So I want to ask you this morning, do you know this love of the Father? I know for, for, with fair certainty, but just based on statistics, that there probably are people here today who don't know truly this love, who has not yet received the love of God offered in the crucified, risen Jesus. And if that's you, I urge you, just receive it freely. Take hold of the love that the Father offers you in his Son. Or it may be that simply as a believer, you've just begun to grow cold in your love. As you've begun to lose sight of the Father's love for you as his child. If that's you, then the same solution. Receive and take hold of the love of God in his son Jesus. Be renewed and refreshed. Have your confidence restored as you see the absolute proof of his love is displayed in the cross of Jesus. You need no other sign or evidence than that God has loved you. The Father has sent his son to be the saviour of the world. I'm going to finish with a prayer which is taken from a book called The Valley of Vision 